Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, one step closer to vaccinating Australians under the age of 12. The great resignation, the post-pandemic job exodus sweeping the world and coming our way, beam me up Bezos. We'll take you to Texas ahead of William Shatner's Blue Origin Space launch. And we meet the Aussie boy from Gundawindi who's taking America's rodeo circuit by storm. But we begin with Pfizer clearing its first key hurdle in getting full approval for its COVID vaccine to be used in children 5 to 11 years old. Political reporter Rob Scott is across the details from Parliament House. Rob, good evening to you. The regulator has given one of many ticks of approval. Yeah, that's right, Michael. Good evening. Uh, it has. The TGA has granted Pfizer what's called provisional determination. Essentially, that means the approval process for vaccinating primary school-aged children will now be sped up. And we know that Pfizer is currently seeking approval for use in 5 to 11-year-olds in the United States, something that our government has been watching very closely. The Health Minister Greg Hunt today says he's been speaking with executives at the drug company and he says that he hopes that their application for approval here in Australia for the same age group will be submitted in the next few weeks. If it is, he says the TGA is ready to take a look at all the clinical data and make a decision very quickly. But he wouldn't put a date on when we could expect uh, to see kids getting the jab, but it's quite possible that could happen by the end of this year or early next year, which will be a massive relief to a lot of parents, especially now as school has started yeah. to go back with states emerging from lockdown. Yeah, it's significant, there's no doubt about that, Rob. What about AstraZeneca, though? We're hearing some reports that it's the end of the line for production in Australia. Not quite yet, Michael, but that might not be too far away with vaccination rates at uh, pretty high levels right across the country and plenty of Pfizer and Moderna now available. Demand for AstraZeneca was always expected to trail off towards the end of the year, but this has really been the workhorse vaccine for Australia, helping us to get to where we are now with the vaccine rollout. Uh, something in the order of more than 12 million doses have been rolled out uh, over the past uh, year or so. And the health department says AstraZeneca uh, was also only contracted to supply a set number of doses and the company expects to actually hit that mark in the first quarter right. of next year. But as to whether or not CSL continues to make the vaccine in Melbourne, the government says that's entirely up to them. And he seems a short time ago we were saying we didn't have enough supplies of anything, now we're stopping production. It's interesting. All right, Rob Scott, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Taking a look at our vaccination rates now, as of today, more than 83% of adults in Australia have had at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. That's a total of just under 31 million, 360,000 vaccines. In seven days on the 20th of October, 70% will have had both jabs and in 19 days, the 1st of November, 80% of the adult population will be fully vaccinated. Well, by the end of the week, Victorians are being promised greater clarity around exactly what happens on the day the first lockdown exit target is reached. As the state charges towards the 70% double-dose goal, Premier Daniel Andrews is appealing for one final big vaccine push. Even with that clarity, it'll still be dependent on people turning up and getting vaccinated. If you want to bring this forward, you've got to go and get your second-dose appointment. And our reporter Estelle Groupink is in Melbourne. Estelle, good evening to you. A lot up in the air. What do we know for certain?
Well, not a lot at the moment, Michael. The Premier says we need to wait for some more clarity later in the week, but we do know that we definitely are on track to get out of lockdown earlier than expected instead of October 26. It's looking like October 21, but we just don't know yet whether restrictions will lift on that day or the day after or how much notice businesses like retail and hospitality will actually get before we get out of lockdown six. Of course, this is a good problem to have getting out of lockdown early, but we do need to make sure that people still go out and get vaccinated so we can hit the target. And that's why the state government has rolled out some pop-up vaccination clinics in unlikely areas like cafes, gyms and community centres. And Michael, I can attest to those pop-up centres. I got my second jab outside a cafe this afternoon. Well, there you go. Congratulations. You're part of the... Uh... <laughs> Part of the push, as Daniel Andrews has been asking for. Well done. Now, Estelle, some of the most vulnerable at either end of the age range are at COVID risk in Melbourne tonight. What can you tell us about this? Well, Michael, we know that there are 29 premature babies at the Royal Children's Hospital Kookaburra Ward. That is the neonatal intensive care ward. They have been potentially exposed to COVID because a parent visited there last week while they were infected. Luckily, we know no transmissions have been recorded yet, but the hospital says they're now going to be doing rapid testing to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. And this all comes, Michael, as we know that 10 aged care facilities all have COVID outbreaks there. And tonight we know that there are 147 positive cases. So certainly authorities hoping to get on top of this before we see a repeat of last year. There's Michael? There's still some very deep areas of concern there. All right, a double vaccinated is still griping. Thanks for joining us. A long overdue homecoming for little Lenny Silvera, who lives with cerebral palsy, and his father could come as early as tomorrow. Official clearance finally coming through for them tonight, having been locked out of Queensland following an overseas trip for brain surgery. Our reporter Alex Lewis is following these developments from Brisbane tonight. Alex, hello to you. So what is left to do before they can actually get on board a plane and come home? Well, good evening, Michael. A lot will depend on the weather tomorrow. We are expecting some severe storms in the southeast, and Lenny's due to fly out from Bankstown and Sydney at 3:30 p.m. Uh, up to the Sunshine Coast. So his pilot from Little Wings, uh, the aviation charity, will make a call on that in the morning. And uh, if it is too dangerous, the flight may be delayed until Friday, uh, which may mean another night in hotel quarantine for Lenny. Um, uh, after his surgery in the US, which allowed him to walk for the first time. Uh, his doctor has ordered him undergo er, um, rigorous physiotherapy, which he can't do in hotel quarantine. Mm. All the necessary equipment is at home. His dad tried to get the ball rolling on an exemption months ago. He's been sending letters since July and they've been repeatedly denied. It was only when he went public on 7 News last night that Queensland Health finally got in touch. Here's some of what he had to say. We never want anything out of normal and uh, it would be such a joy for, for him to finally get to, to meet everybody again. I'm sure it'll be a joy for them too. They haven't seen little Lenny in more than six weeks, but most importantly, he'll be able to start that vital physiotherapy yeah. uh, and begin his journey of recovery, Michael. It was a silly situation, but it's finally being resolved slowly. So let's hope the weather is good tomorrow for that flight back quickly. Alex Lewis in Brisbane, Fingers thank crossed. you. Yeah, indeed, thank you. Talks are taking place tomorrow around the next stage of easing lockdown in New South Wales. The state's on track to hit the 80% double-dose reopening goal by the weekend, which hypothetically should trigger a much earlier further winding back of restrictions. One of them is regional travel, but with low vaccine rates in some areas, it leaves Premier Perrottet with a big decision to make. 
Two Melbourne mates who escaped lockdown to watch the AFL Grand Final in Perth are right now serving out the first night of their three-month jail sentence. Bar owner Hayden Burbank and financial planner Mark Babbage learned their punishment after pleading guilty to sneaking in via Darwin on fake documents. Once they're out of a WA jail, they're off to face court in the Northern Territory. And Tasmanian authorities are tracing potential contacts of a COVID-infected man who escaped hotel quarantine. Police discovered the 31-year-old in a home in Hobart's north. The New South Wales resident arrived in Tasmania via Melbourne on Monday without a valid entry pass. He has been sent back to the hotel. He'll be fined $3,000. The newest team in the NRL is going to be headed up by one of the game's veteran coaches, Wayne Bennett, set to sign on to lead the Dolphins, based out of Redcliffe in Queensland. Our chief NRL reporter, Michelle Bishop, joins me now with all the details. Michelle, good evening to you. First question, why Redcliffe and who are the Dolphins? Good evening, Michael. They are financially stable, $70 million in assets, plenty of cash, and it is in rugby league's heartland, particularly the northern corridor that includes Moreton Bay and the Sunshine Coast. Michael, they are trying to force the Dolphins' name rather than Redcliffe to incorporate that larger area. Participation is huge at a junior level. They have an enormous history with a stack of leagues greats coming from the club, like Immortal, Arthur Beetson, John Rebo, uh, Daly Cherry Evans and Petro Sivanasiva. And what this, this this does mean in terms of the, the change with the draw for all NRL fans in 2023 is it'll change to 26 rounds with one bye every week and every club mm. having two buys for the season. And a bit of a bonus will be one of those buys will be falling right during the origin period. So shall a significant coup, uh, Bennett heading up the code 17th team. Michael, this will be huge. They call in the master coach for a reason. Not only will the money start pouring in by way of sponsorship dollars, he'll have no problem putting an attractive roster together with some big names to give the fledgling club the best possible start. Fans, they're tough. They won't want to wait too long for results mm. and his track record really, it proves, it speaks for himself. He's got the best credentials. He built the Broncos dynasty and they were, of course, hugely successful throughout that 90s period. And seeing Bennett return to Brisbane, I can only imagine we'll stir up a little bit of animosity for some. Well, there's going to be some shuffling around here. We've got a name here, we've got a base, we've got a coach. What about the players? Well, there's a few other NRL clubs right now who'll be very, very nervous over the next little while. Many free to negotiate with other clubs as early as November 1, and that's for 2023. I'm talking players like Cameron Munster, Clint Gutherson, Reid Marnie, Cody Walker, Christian Welsh, and there's even a clause in Kalen Ponga's current deal with the Knights that would give him the green light to make the switch if he wants to. Certainly not something the Newcastle Knights fans want to see. But 157 players will be off contract very shortly. The timing is sweet for a new club. Big changes. All right, Michelle, thank you for that. Thanks, Marsh. Economists are observing an unexpected side effect of COVID-19. Millions of people are quitting their jobs. The so-called Great Resignation has already started to bite in the USA, and there are predictions it won't be long until it hits Australia, too. Our network finance editor, Gemma Acton, joins me now. This is really the Great Resignation. <laughs> haven't heard of that yet, but it's a thing. Um, why are people leaving their jobs? Well, I might actually start with the numbers, because they are really shocking. Uh, in the US, 4.3 million people left their jobs in August. And a way to put that into perspective is looking at what they call the quits rate, which is how many people voluntarily leave their jobs each month out of a given population, 2.9%, which is the highest it's been since they started tracking this, which was about 20 years ago. And the reasons are diverse why people are leaving, but they all ultimately track back to COVID in, in various guises. Some people just made a lot of money and saved up during right. COVID and can retire a little bit earlier, or 
realise that they don't always have the opportunity to travel. It was a bit of a wake-up call that you can't just get in a plane whenever you want. So taking midlife career breaks as well. Mm -hmm. You do sadly have people who just burnt out, frontline yeah. workers, nurses, teachers, exhausted and just don't want that stress anymore, need to find a new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. People also sadly who just found too much precariousness and insecurity through the jobs they're doing, arts, hospitality and just want to go into something more stable. Mm -hmm. Others who just liked the taste of flexibility and freedom they had from not being chained to a desk from nine to five every day and having to do a daily commute, so looking at other options. And then a big factor which sits over all of this is that there are a lot of job openings at the moment. So people feel, look, if I quit my job, it's not a desperate situation, I'll probably get another one. Isn't that interesting? It's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a trend, I'm not an economist, so I wouldn't know, but it's a trend you wouldn't predict going into a pandemic, that people after it all, you'd think people would be hanging on to their jobs and uncertain, but in fact it's given some flexibility. What about Australia? Is it going to, uh, we often do follow on those American trends? Yeah, it looks like here? it, yeah. particularly given the timing of when they started to get their vaccine rates up and come out of their lockdowns. So we are a little bit behind from that point of view. Uh, but no, Australia was probably likely to see the same thing. They're saying we're expecting to see that early-ish next year. Mm. And we're already seeing signs of similarities. For instance, job ads came out today and it showed that for the first time since April, job ads actually rose month on month in September, if you compare that to August. And that was really when we started getting much clearer roadmaps for mm. New South Wales and Victoria so we could see a way beyond this and learn that this is how we're going to live as a country with this virus going forward. Uh, but if you look at the job ads again, compare it to a year ago, they're up more than 50%, which isn't that surprising because September 2020, we were yep. still a lot of uncertainty about the pandemic. Compare it to September 2019, they're still a quarter higher today than they were then, which is quite astonishing given yeah. that that was pre-pandemic so just showing how much need there is it's a confluence of a few things our borders have been shut for 19 months to migrants and they've always been a really important part of our of our labor force yeah. seasonal demand with christmas around the corner and then emerging from lockdowns businesses getting up and running again so it's all coming together what will be interesting to watch is if anything happens to wages growth because yeah. it has been stagnant for years now on end real upper hand to businesses over employees and seeing if this uh, the, the sheer need for labour in many sectors, not just the obvious ones like hospitality and tourism, but also construction, yeah. infrastructure, So you think mining. that might go up? People might have to start offering better wages to well, lure that people or, if they're... That or more flexibility. Yeah. I think people have to offer... Conditions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Depends all, what you want. All things we couldn't have predicted. It was all doom and gloom <laughs> at the beginning of all this and everything was, you know, going to go badly. It's fascinating. Yeah. Always is when we talk to you. Gemma, thank you. Thanks, Michael. As we speak, Star Trek legend William Shatner is undergoing his final training and checks, preparing to become the oldest person to ever blast off into space. Here's the 90-year-old actor reflecting on the moment. I feel comfortable, but I'm also uncomfortable. I'm, I'll be very happy when we go up and, and we're in weightlessness and we know we're safe because everything else should be all right, and we have that moment of inspiration, which I feel will be there when we're looking into the vastness of the uh, of the universe. Hard to believe he's 90. Our US correspondent David Woywood's in Texas where Blue Origins launch pad is. David, hello to you. Uh, very early in the morning there, not long to go now. What do we know about this mission? 
Good evening, Michael. Well, uh, this is just uh, Blue Origin's second ever passenger mission to space. And in fact, it will in many ways mirror that trip that Jeff Bezos took here just months ago. A couple of notable differences, though. Uh, look, this flight here actually had to be postponed by 24 hours because of some incredibly strong winds here on the ground in Van Horn, Texas. And uh, that was really playing havoc with that early rollout operation. Look, uh, we haven't heard from the Blue Origin team this morning. As you say, we are now just hours away from that launch time. So hopefully that is a good sign. As you say, it will also be a special mission for another reason as well. On board this flight will be William Shatner, Captain Kirk himself. He has been put through his paces out at that training facility, the desert training facility over the last uh, few days as well. Uh, this trip will make him, of course, uh, the oldest man ever in space at 90 years old. And he is just incredibly excited to now add astronaut to this long list of accomplishments. It's a fantastic little bit of space history we're about to experience here. David, William Shatner, he's not going to be the only notable passenger on board the mission. No, he won't be. He will be joined by three others, and uh, one of them will be an Australian by the name of Chris Boschhausen. Now, this trip will make him just the third Aussie ever in space, but the first to have paid his own way. Now, he is incredibly uh, secretive about how much he's actually forked out uh, for that ticket, but we know it is quite expensive to actually book a, a seat on board this Blue Origin capsule. Uh, of course, look, uh, this has been a lifelong mission for Chris Boschhausen. He was a former NASA engineer. He is now a ticket. Uh, he is now a, a tech entrepreneur in uh, in uh, in California. This has been a mission that he has wanted to take part on uh, his entire life. Look, I, I spoke to him recently, and he has said that this experience up to this point has really been worth every cent. Tell us how is everyone feeling with the delay and everything that's been happening there over the past few days. I think we're actually pretty enthusiastic. I mean, I've been in the space industry my whole life, and every rocket I've ever launched has has been delayed. So, in my space bingo card, I got to I got to check one more box. So, done that, and uh, now we're all ready for Wednesday and ready to go. You're a bit of a pro. What about for some of the others as well who perhaps haven't been through this entire process? Has it added to that nervous energy? Do you think? Yeah, well, we have like Audrey Powers, who who has been at Blue Origin, I think worked on New Shepard for eight years. She's uh, done the training multiple times through her life and is an absolute pro. But I think, you know, she's excited to really try the real thing. And, uh, you know, Glenn is, is uh, you know, a long time uh, secret space nerd. He's been, he's, you know, finally come out to the public as as, as a real card carrying member of, of the space community. And then, you know, actually, Mr. Shatner, ironically, um, he uh, has lived in the fantasy realm of space for so long and never, never actually occurred to him that he might go. Um, so he's the most surprised of all. It's really life imitating art here, isn't it, for him? It is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely stopped to think about the gravity, <laughs> pun intended, of, of what he's about to do. So we've had some good, good chats about that. Well, he's going to be the oldest person in space as well. How does he feel about that? What's he sort of telling you guys about that? Well, he said yesterday, like, oh, they're making about me being the oldest person in space. Well, I don't really care. <laughs> so I, um, you know, he, in his own words, he said he wanted to go up and, and soak in the view and, and ponder the deep mysteries of the universe as he stares out into space, which I think is, is very fitting. So tell us about the training over the past few days. What have they put you through? That's actually, it's been pretty intense. Um, so we've had really early starts. Today was 3.30 in the morning. Um, so we have a simulator that is a, a mock-up of the capsule on the ground. It looks exactly like the one we're going to fly in. 
And we've been practicing walking into the capsule, not bumping our head, getting into our seats, buckling in properly. And then they have these huge subwoofers underneath the, um, the capsule that shake the whole thing and play the sound at about 120 decibels that you'll experience during launch. And I almost cried on the first run through where I was just like, this is so real. I mean, it, that is the best Disneyland ride I've ever been on. Um, that is amazing. Now, can you give us a little hint about what might happen up there? You've said that there perhaps could be a little group get-together that was sort of something that had been floated at one stage. Can you give us a little hint of what's planned? Yeah, so, I mean, our whole crew, you know, we were, you know, we had never actually met in person before. Uh, we did a little Zoom hangout about a week ago, and, you know, we got into training, and we're all sizing each other up, and who's this guy, and who's this celebrity here, and, you know, who are we? And so we had that little moment of, like, you know, figuring out each other. And then after the training, we really bonded as a crew. It's actually amazing how, how close we are as a family now. And so it was actually it was Bill Shatner's idea to, uh, you know, have a moment of, you know, camaraderie and humanity up there and, and unite and do one thing together. So we're still planning the details, but if you watch the, uh, the live stream, you'll see what, what we're up to. William Shatner is as uh, Joker Minute, basically, and uh, he, he definitely keeps us in stitches here. And you are a Trekkie fan, aren't you? Absolutely, yeah. I used to stay up with my mum and dad um, watching it when I was a kid, and um, yeah, it's unbelievable to to you know, be sitting next to him in a seat. I'm actually in the seat where we're all in a ring, right? So it's uh, head to toe, head to toe, head to toe. My feet are at William Shatner's head and he's kindly reminded me many, many times to not kick him in the head as he floats out of his chair. Oh. <laughs> You're in the final countdown now, uh, Chris. What does that involve? Yeah, so we have to do more training. Uh, there's a number of things we haven't trained yet. One of them is how to not fall on our face when we step out of the capsule in the desert. I'm eager to learn that because everyone will be watching and I don't want to mess that up. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we also have, uh, we have to run through these sequences of, of training. And so one of the hardest things is actually getting back into your seat in zero gravity because on the ground, you can just plop your butt down into the seat and you're fine. You know, gravity takes care of it. But in space, that doesn't work. And we have about a minute to get into our seat before we start to head into a high uh, acceleration phase, about five Gs as we hit the atmosphere. So if we're not in our seat, it's going to hurt. Um, so we're going to spend uh, probably the next two days basically just training and training. I wake up, I woke up this morning with like seatbelt plans in my head of like the you know, feet first, then this, then this. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's probably two days of that coming up. Can you just tell us, is there any nerves or is it just excitement at the moment? I'm pure adrenaline right now. If uh, my brain chemistry is not letting me do anything else other than just like focus on getting the job done. And uh, yeah, we'll probably be after the fact. I'm like, what the hell did I just do? Well, all the very best, mate. We can't wait to speak to you on the other side. It's going to be fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Look forward to chatting in, in just two days. So. Oh, good luck, mate. All the best. Yeah, and a pretty exciting moment there for Chris Boschhausen, who will, of course, make uh, Australian history in just a few hours' time, the third Aussie in space, yeah. Michael. It's going to be an incredible trip. All right, hope it goes well. David Woywood in Texas. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yeah. 
The long-awaited Sydney Film Festival kicks off next month, showcasing some of the best in local and international cinema. One very special film has turned the lens on the devastation of the 2019 Black Summer bushfires, telling the story of the volunteer firefighters who routinely risk their lives to try and save the properties of friends and strangers alike. Have a look at this clip. I'll never get those images out of my head. That was not a normal bushfire. That was something dragged up out of hell and dumped on earth. We kept trying to get the car out and it, um, it just wouldn't move. We both just looked at each other and went, this is where it ends for us. The emergency didn't stop the day the rains came. A different sort of emergency took over. This was the largest recognised volunteer firefighting organisation in the world. Most people have no idea that they're not being paid. They're just your average battler. Most people are struggling, paying the bills and keeping their family going. It amazes us how some of these people will give without even thinking of their own situation. Extremely powerful. Luke Mazzaferro is the writer and uh, co-director of that film. He joins me now. Luke, thanks for coming into the studio. Now, the seed for the film, this is an interesting story, it was actually sown while you were sitting on a plane. Tell me about that. Yeah, so Justin Crook, who I co-directed the film with, he and I were doing press for our previous documentary and um, at the time we were flying around the country doing that and from the sky we were looking out the window and seeing smoke everywhere, just devastation and we thought this is not normal and Justin's an American and so for him seeing that scale, he's used to just seeing those fires in California but seeing it across the country. Because the scale was extraordinary, wasn't it? was extraordinary it? And, um, and at one point the pilot even had to come over the PA and say, the smoke you're smelling is not to do with the plane, don't yeah. worry about it, it's from outside. But um, the real um, seed for the film kind of came about a month or two after that when a filmmaker friend of ours, Andrew Flakler, who's a long-time RFS member, um, was giving a talk about his experiences on the front line. And it was at that moment that we started thinking, okay, the human stories behind mm. the fires is not really being told, and there was something in that. They're gripping stories, as we saw in the clip there. Um, the volunteer element was so important in, in this documentary and so important to the firefighting effort. Why was it important to you to tell those stories? I think it was something that we felt was it was harder to see. There was so much about the fires themselves, the unprecedented scale, the politics around it, um, whereas we thought that there was these amazing people who were giving so much. They were... Who were these people that would give up their day job, mm. say goodbye to their families for days or weeks, and in this case of the Black Summer fires, months at a time. What's the psychology behind that? And then what's the toll of that? And then beyond that, who are the um, unsung community heroes who don't wear uniforms? Yeah. Who are those people that give so much? I was surprised in, the, in that clip that you mentioned there of uh, the largest volunteer or organised, registered organisation in the world, mm. which is quite an extraordinary human force. One of the central stories uh, is a volunteer called Nathan, a volunteer firefighter. Let's have a listen to some of his story. I radioed our, our control centre and I said that we couldn't get to the family, like to the people. But I asked them, you know, can you guarantee that there are people in there? Because if we go back, this is, you know, the likelihood of being that lucky twice isn't really high. And, um, and they replied with, to the best of our knowledge, there are people in the house. And, uh, and so we shut everything up, we turned around and, and we went back in. So strong. I mean, how do you... You obviously got to know him pretty well in the course of making the documentary. Is he still processing the emotions of what he went through, what he experienced? 
Absolutely. I think everyone, to be honest, everyone who's in the film is still processing what they went through. Um, you know, they, these are emotional scars that just don't go away. You actually, you, you're living with those forever. Mm. And it's about uh, acquiring the tools and, and the, the emotional resilience to continue on. Yeah. What are some of the other stories that stuck with you from the other volunteers? Obviously, you've spoken to a lot of them. Yeah, there's... Um, so the film is... There's a lot to do with volunteer firefighters, but as I was saying, there's a lot about the community mm. helpers out there. There's a woman called Paula Zaha from um, Tamil who uh, survived quite intense domestic violence and from her own experience recognised the need to um, provide low-cost meals to community members. So out of that she created our community pantry and during Black Summer fires she actually just uh, turned her own army of volunteers towards providing meals for the RFS firefighters and fire and rescue. So she was the army of volunteers behind the army of volunteers. Yeah. So many layers of human stories yeah. in it's all incredible. of this. How do you find they're all getting on? I know that sounds like such a basic question, but are they still trying to work out what happened? I'd imagine some of the mental health challenges there are quite extraordinary. They are. It's, um, it's a varied field. Trauma doesn't have a linear path towards uh, recovery. Um, the triggers can be random, um, but the nice thing that we've found is people, for the most part, have seeked help, and that's a really powerful thing. Have they watched any of this back? That can be sometimes a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah, they have. Yeah. It, was, it was important for us that we shared the film with them before uh, the public got to see it, mm. and the sentiment has uh, been incredible and humbling yeah it's been intense emotionally for them but they've uh some of the things we've had uh them say is that it's made them proud to be australian and that it's actually made them want to um continue doing what they do it's reminded them of yeah. why they do it i find sometimes in, in in longer interviews that i do it can be a little like therapy sometimes it's it is a cathartic process sharing your story yeah this um it's been an intense experience making this film but an yeah. incredibly rewarding one um and i think the fact that people were courageous enough to share their story with us and trusting enough. Oh, it's a big thing um, for that trust. It's, it's extraordinary that you've done. Look, um, thank you so much for sharing. Your, your film is in cinemas across the country now that we can go to cinemas, which is yeah. even better. And the fact that the Sydney Film Festival next month, uh, you know, is back in action, which is a, a big thing as well. What would you encourage people to do now that the festival's back? I encourage everyone to get out and, um, you know, see the film on the big screen. It is obviously a, a huge story um and an emotional story it's yeah. not an easy experience but ultimately it is a rewarding one i think mm. people will take out that um the best of australia and the best of humanity was ultimately on display despite oh. all the other chaos we sort of you know sadly we've forgotten a bit of what happened pre-covid and this was certainly the the event and it might be nice to remember that human spirit absolutely yeah, yeah. i think um we forget that for a lot of people who went through the fires they're already on their knees by the time uh, the fires got to them. Yeah. They'd gone through extreme drought, then the fires hit, then COVID hit, <laughs> then lockdowns just stifled uh, that most important tool for recovery, which is human connection. Yeah. Then some places had floods and, and There's so... There's been so much isolation and hurt, you know, it's time yeah. to... Look, um, it's called A Fire Inside. Um, I'd encourage people to go and have a good look at that. But Luke Matsaferro, thank you for coming in and sharing. Thanks for having me. Great.
Seven years ago, Jake Finlay packed his bags and left Gundawindi heading to the States to try and make a name for himself on the rodeo circuit. He earned a place at a university in Oklahoma on a rodeo scholarship and now, age 25, Jake is a four-time US national rodeo champion known as Salsa on the Pro Tour. Have a look at Jake in action now. Bronc rider in the world, it's Salsa. Jake Finley, come on Jake, let's ride. The oh yeah, holy oh, yeah. I'm not sure he's human. He rides like a machine, Ken. This kid told me when he first got to Panhandle State, and I quote, mate, I couldn't ride a gate on a windy day. No, but let me tell you what he has done. He has progressed to the top 10 in the world. What a great bronc ride. Numbers coming in. How about 85 points for Finley? What the ride is excellent. The commentary is fantastic as well. Jake joins me now from Texas. Jake, good day to you. And make, so, I know it's early in the morning there, so thanks for making a bit of time for us. No, thanks for having me. I grew up watching you guys back home, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm happy to be on it. Oh, well, it's our pleasure to be, have you here. Now, look, a full-time professional career for you. For anyone who just doesn't understand what your job is, we saw a bit of it there. How, how do you explain your job over there? Uh, the best way I could explain my job is uh, I ride bucking horses for a living, but we... Uh, we go to 100 to 150 events a year and get on uh, 200 horses in the year and uh, we go to rodeos from as far south as Arcadia, Florida to as, as far north as Calgary, Alberta and uh, we do a, a lot of driving and a lot of flying and, uh, and uh, you have to get paid, you have to, in order to get paid you have to win so, Gee. so you have to be riding good and drawing good. Now correct me here, I think you've only just got home after a long time on the road, is that right? Yeah, I left the house in May, and uh, we've been on the road. Me and my travelling partners, I, I roll with the little crew, and we uh, we left the house in May, and and I just pulled in about two hours ago at six in the morning over here now. So I'm uh, I'm ready ready for some time at home. I bet you are. Well, we appreciate the tiny bit of time you've given us now. How does the rodeo circuit in Australia compare to the one in the states? Um, the the, the biggest difference one can see in it is, is just the money. Uh, there's a, a lot more rodeos over here that pay a hell of a lot better. Yeah. Uh, a person can, can actually make it make a living over here and make a career out of it. Um, there's a lot of fierce competitors back home and a lot of good stock, but it just lacks the money. Now, I'll tell you what, just as, you know, I know nothing about this, I'm just watching on, it, it, it's got to be a whole lot more than just holding on tight, right? Tell me about how difficult it is when you're on the back of that horse. Yeah, so, some people think it's just kind of holding on tight and wild, but but uh, we 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 have a what we call a spurring motion where we bring our feet uh, from the front to the back of the horse, and um, that that allows you to get more points. And uh, we're we're, ju we're judged off our horse and off our spur ride. I tell you what, I mean, holding on, the the, the, the I guess the motivation is to not end up in the dirt there because you could do yourself a real injury. You must have busted yourself over time. I mean, knock on wood, I've been all right, but uh, I've, uh, I've had a little bit of knee trouble and a little bit of hip trouble, but no, nothing too major right now. What's your professional goal there, mate, in, in America? Um, overall goal is I'd like, to, I'd like to be the second Australian ever to win the world title, the Canadian title and the Australian title. That's what I'm kind of shooting for eventually. Uh, right now we're just trying to get, get to the national finals rodeo in Las Vegas, Nevada. They, that's our Super Bowl of rodeo. That's a, that happens once a year and you've got to be in the top 15 in order to get in it. What about back home in Gundawindi? A bit of a celebrity there, Jake? 
I don't necessarily say I'm a celebrity. Maybe when I'm sitting at my mother's kitchen table, I'm a celebrity. <laughs> but there's a lot of rodeo cowboys that I know uh, kind of somewhat look up to me and want to do what yeah. I've done. And and I'm and I'm not doing anything special. I've just done what cowboys before me have done. There's been a lot of good cowboys come from Australia, Darren Clark, and and a lot of a lot of good a lot of good good competitors. Well, your mum, no doubt, is your biggest fan back at the kitchen table, back at home. Does she ever worry about what you what you're getting up to in America? Janine Finlay worries about everything every single day, so I'm <laughs> Like every good mum, good honour. Well, Jake, I tell you what, it's lovely to hear your success story over there. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Now, Gemma's back with a look at the markets. Well, Michael, it was a positive day across much of the region, but not in Japan or Australia, both of which markets saw shares fall for another day running. But those drops were limited, showing investors reluctant to make drastic moves either way. Markets in Hong Kong were closed. And there's a lot to watch in the US tonight. The latest inflation report alongside earnings from banking giant JP Morgan, both of which will give more clues as to the hotly debated true state of the US economy. Oil is still trending higher, but at a more measured pace than we have seen in recent weeks when the global energy crisis was escalating more rapidly. And the Aussie dollar has flatlined today, dead on 73.5 US cents. Michael. Thank you for your company this evening. From the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a great night.